Well, it's good to see everybody this morning, um, especially with the weather. Special welcome to those of you joining us online. In fact, it's days like this with the weather where we're especially grateful for our tech team um, that we can actually keep worship going. Um, of course, those of you joining us in person, you know it's great to be able to see each other's faces. Um, but for those joining us online, um, whether it's the weather or an illness or the busyness or whatever happens, we really want to stay connected as a church. And so it's great each week for me to look you in the eye. I usually Cammie and I are in the back saying hello and welcoming you and saying goodbye and wishing you well for a week and Tyler's up front. And so the three of us always make ourselves accessible. Um, but we want to do the same thing for those of you joining us online. So if you would just take a moment uh, and just in the chat bar, just say your name or say hello or welcome or good morning or whatever state you're in right now. We just love to be able to connect with you. In fact, um, if you want to reach out to us online, feel free to um, go to our website, find any of our um, emails or texts, and just send us a note. We'd love to link up, happy to set up a Zoom call or whatever else we need to do, but really just want the church to stay connected. It's so, so important, um, especially when you think about all the things that we're doing as a church, um, because this pillar stuff that we're talking about, um, it, it, it's for all of us here in person and it's all of us online. It's the entire church, and so we want everybody focused on these pillars um, and, and that we're focused on praying through them and making sure we know how God is leading us in these pillars. Um, these, are pillar, these pillars were so important to the early church, and they're important to us because they're those foundational fundamentals. And those are the same fundamentals that we are focused on. That's why we always have our football up here to remind us of those fundamentals because the fundamentals are key for us to be able to carry out our vision. And as you know, we're a church with a vision to reach the tri-state region and beyond making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we do that by taking our next steps towards Christ together, day by day. We're not a church that just meets on Sundays. We're going to be a church that's about the business of the kingdom every single day of the week. We're also a church with flaws, and we know that. Um, if you look around, you don't see any perfect people, um, and that's why we need grace. That's why we need Jesus. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need that. Um, but we do need that grace. Um, and of course, none of us want to stay in that not okay place which is why we're also a church that loves you enough to tell you the truth and the person, words, and works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we've been learning about that truth from him really since August in this Sermon on the Mount. And it's one of those sermons that really flips our world upside down, but especially the past two weeks as we've been looking at this issue of judgment, because judgment is one of those things that really impacts every single one of us. All of us deal with it on an individual level, but we also, just as a culture right now, seem to be in an era where we just have this amped up judgment all around us. But the good news is, today, we get a word of encouragement from Jesus. In fact, hopefully everyone leaves here with an outlook on life that is radiant with hope. So let's go before him, let's ask his help, and then we'll dig in. God of wonders, you are the name above all names, worthy of all of our praise, would you meet us here this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, grant us eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that receive your truth, for Jesus' sake, amen. So when Tyler read this passage for us today, some of you had to be thinking, why is this text here? It seems like an odd place for this to just be stuck in the middle of this chapter 7, which is all about relationships and judgment. And didn't Jesus also already teach us on prayer 
back in chapter 6. If you recall, we studied the Lord's Prayer right before Thanksgiving. And hopefully you recall several of the key issues that Jesus taught the disciples and us about prayer. First, don't pray to draw attention to ourselves. Don't use showy language. Don't try to impress others. Pray in private. Second, don't babble. God already knows our needs even before we ask him. We learned that we're to pray instead this way, out of a spirit of humility and for God's glory. You'll recall the familiar words that he taught us from the Lord's Prayer, where we're to begin by acknowledging who he is by his great name, our Father, and where he reigns in heaven. Hallowed or holy is your name, expressing our desire to live as heirs of his kingdom now and in his kingdom come, conveying how it's our greatest privilege to carry out his will, not ours, on earth as it is in heaven. Then voicing our utmost dependence on his grace, getting those things we don't deserve for our material needs, our daily bread, our relational needs, forgiveness from God and from others, and our spiritual needs, deliverance from the evil of this world. Hopefully we all remember that teaching. So then why does Jesus bring prayer up again at this point in his message? Well, that's a great question, and it's very important for us to understand it, especially given all that we've studied. Now, it could just be that Jesus repeats the call for us to pray because we need to be reminded of our dependence on him. But perhaps it's also a response to the immensity and heaviness of what we've been studying the past two weeks. I mean, this topic of judgment is a really big deal. It's perhaps the most convicting, heart-wrenching, and challenging topic that we face in our life. If you think about it, it's the driving force we've contended with since the moment that we were born. Our parents' judgment had all sorts of impacts on our lives as children, sometimes encouraging, sometimes disciplining, sometimes even rebuking us. The judgment of our peers. Think about how much that impacted us throughout elementary school, middle school, and high school. It affected us in so many profound ways. In fact, so much of our identity and self-worth can be traced back to the judgment that we've faced in our lives, especially when the judgment evolved to the point of condemnation, the very stuff Jesus warned us about. Having a self-righteous, censorious, hypercritical, ignorant, and prone to ad hominem spirit that leads to condemnation. And I hope everyone has been working on this over the past couple of weeks because it's so pervasive in our lives. And it's heavy, isn't it? We likened it to jumping out of line, crawling up on God's throne, and judging others to the point of condemnation, and then getting back in line to be judged by God. It's the pinnacle of hypocrisy. But we do it all the time. And when we judge others in this way, Jesus teaches that we bring that same judgment on ourselves from others and also from God. We learned how God's judgment has tangible consequences for us in at least three ways. 
First, it can result in sickness, illness, and even death on earth when we're given over to the sins of the world. Second, it can also result in us missing out on rewards once we're in heaven. And both of those are pretty unsettling to think about. And then as we learned with a third one, there's an eternal judgment, heaven or hell, for all eternity. Of course, Jesus' blood secures our place in heaven when we respond to his call on our lives and we place our faith in him. He stands in our place so that we're not condemned on that day of judgment, and it's a promise that we're assured of. And it's indeed good news, which is why it's called the gospel message. But even still, accepting God's gift of free salvation by placing our faith in him is hard because we want to earn it, don't we? So do you see why judgment is such a heavy and challenging topic for us? And if that weren't enough, Jesus calls us to then discern truth, which we all wrestle with. That's not easy to respond in grace and love, and we know how hard that is most days, and then even turn away from the pigs and the dogs that Cammie taught us on last week, and we know how difficult that can be. So this is pretty weighty stuff. It's taxing. It's unsettling. But it's the truth of judgment, and we simply must confront it. And Jesus knows the depths of our despair when we face up to this issue of judgment. We need help, and he offers it right here with a promise to grant what we need to operate in the face of this reality as heirs of his kingdom. So Jesus begins by making it clear how he wants us to approach God in prayer, in one word, persistently, ask, seek, knock, a progressive intensity with each additional verb. So we're praying with a sense of urgency, with all we've got, as if we must simply have what we're requesting, because it's a matter of great significance to us. I'm talking about the kind of plea we might make when life and death hang in the balance. Of course, this stands in stark contrast to the state of complacency we tend to find ourselves in most days. And that's in large part because judgment to the point of condemnation so often paralyzes us and makes us complacent. And whether we realize it or not, every person, every team, every organization out there is in a constant battle against complacency. And complacency is marked by three things, as you see up here. Dodging criticism, ducking accountability, and avoiding necessary risks. And it all speaks to the sheer magnitude of what judgment to the point of condemnation does to us. It's why we dodge criticism and take such offense to any negative feedback because we bear so many scars from our past. We also duck accountability. We'll do just about anything not to be held responsible for our failings. And we love to shift the blame to others. Blame our teachers, blame our bosses, blame our parents. Anything to shift it away from ourselves. And we avoid taking necessary risks that might expose our flaws so others won't sit 
in judgment on us. And surely I'm not alone in this battle against complacency and the issues that condemnation has caused in my life. And unfortunately, complacency too often manifests itself spiritually in a lukewarm faith and in a listless prayer life. But Jesus shakes us out of this complacency. He calls us instead to a life of persistent prayer so that he can give us the strength we need to deal with criticism, to embrace accountability, and to take necessary risks as heirs of his kingdom. He knows we're going to need strength, cosmic strength, the kind that can only come from the creator and the sustainer of the universe. So Jesus leads off with a call for us to battle complacency by persistently asking, seeking, and knocking for help as if our lives depended upon it, because they do. And when we're persistent, he makes a promise. And God's promises simply can't be broken. They stand forever. Whenever we ask, we receive. When we seek, we find. And when we knock, it's opened. Every single time, he promises. And that's the source of our comfort. His promise, the very same source of comfort that assures us of our salvation, his promise. Now, we all know that life's a pilgrimage full of unexpected twists and turns, highlands and heartaches, triumphs, tragedies. And the longer you live, the more you realize that it's not so much what comes our way because we have so little control over that. Rather, it's more how we respond to the challenges of each passing day because we do control our response. So our response must draw on Jesus' promise to grant our requests. He says it three times when we persistently ask, seek, and knock. Now sometimes that comes in the form of a dear friend who shows up when we're hanging on by the slimmest of margins. But other times, the winds of life whip so strong that we're cut off from our fellow pilgrims. And even then, in those moments of solitude, when we still feel all alone, we can still be unafraid because of this promise. That he will respond to our persistence when we ask, seek, and knock. He's faithful. Our God moves mountains. He will do it. So this sounds like a pretty good gig, doesn't it? As long as we keep after it, God will grant it. So to fully understand what the it is, we're going to need to move on to the second part of this passage. I listed a couple of good things on the screen behind me in blue that we typically pray for. We like to be happy. Surely God wants us to be happy. And some of us spend a lot of time in our prayer life praying for things that we think will make us happy. So why then do we face so much disappointment and sadness in our lives? Health seems like something we should pray for too. We've all prayed for good health and we still get sick and injured. Perhaps education or our occupation. Economists tell us that empirically, these are two of the most important decisions that we ever make in our lives. 
both contribute to our quality of life and lifetime earnings. No doubt, many of us have prayed for good help, or prayed for both, but we've received neither. How about marriage and children? If you grew up in the typical American church, then you know how important these two are. An innocent bystander might conclude that marriage and children are more important than Jesus in most churches some days. Yet even among Christians, half of all marriages end in divorce, and many Christian parents struggle having children. And there's plenty of Christian parents like me who have no business trying to raise the children that we have. Most of us are way in over our heads as parents many days. So what's Jesus referring to then? Because he promises to give us what we ask for. Well, I suppose it could be the case that we're just not praying persistently enough. But we've all seen attempts by prayer warriors to heal, to employ, to pass exams, resolve marriages, have children, all to no avail. Many claiming this verse as their justification. It's often linked to what's referred to as the prosperity gospel. In essence, it holds that Jesus will grant whatever you ask for as long as you pray for it hard enough. And it's a great example of why it's so problematic to take Scripture out of context. Because if you've even been semi-conscious for the last six months during our sermons, I know that's a lot to ask, particularly when I'm up here preaching, but you can't help but detect a consistent theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that we are to reject the things of this world and embrace the things of the kingdom. So you see, the prosperity gospel people, they actually get it right in the sense that God will provide unfathomable prosperity. They just get the timing wrong. Prosperity isn't in this world. It's in God's kingdom, and it will be amazing. But it probably won't have a whole lot to do with education, children, occupations, health, marriage, or even happy on this earth. But it most certainly will be about God's glory. No more sin, eternal joy, living in his presence forever. So the first thing, the it, what we must ask, seek, and knock him for, must have something to do with kingdom things. But that's not all the it thing appears to be about. There's more. So let's split the final part of our text in two, and then we'll take them in turn. The top part makes two parallel references to a son asking for bread and fish from his earthly father. Bread and fish were staples back in the day, and both are symbols throughout Scripture of our necessities, our daily bread. If our son asks us for necessities, things he needs, us earthly fathers don't give him a stone or a serpent. Why? Because we love our children, and we want to see them flourish. We don't give them things that will hurt them. So the use of these two illustrations gives us another important glimpse into the it that we're to ask, seek, and knock for, those kingdom necessities, things we absolutely need to operate as heirs of his kingdom. 
And then Jesus makes this assertion. If you then, who are evil, and we just have to stop right there, don't we? Because once again, we simply can't avoid this doctrine of total depravity. It's everywhere. And some of you still wince and bristle at this, but it's not me. Jesus is the one who keeps reminding us of this truth. It's why we keep saying that Jesus turns our world upside down with his Sermon on the Mount. Because the world is all about pride, ego, and self. You just go live your best life. Or folks are basically decent. That's what conventional wisdom would say. No. The kingdom isn't about living out our best life. And there's very little that's decent about any of us. Jesus says it right here. He says we're evil. And yet even though we're evil, we still do our best to care for our children as earthly parents by meeting their needs. So how much more will our Father in heaven give us the good things as we see stated here in the text? Let's first address the Father in heaven part. As believers, we're his adopted children, heirs of his kingdom. He loves us far more than our earthly parents could ever possibly love us. And he knows everything. So he knows exactly what we need, and he wants to give us what Jesus describes as the good things. So we have yet a third key insight into the it that we are to ask, seek, and knock for. The good things. So what are the good things? Well, they could clearly be things that are just good for us. And we don't always know what those things are when we pray. So maybe he only answers it when we pray for the good things. And that's quite possible. We don't want to rule that out. Because we know that we are to pray for our material, relational, and spiritual needs. And certainly, please don't hear this today, that we're not to pray about the things of the world. We're to pray about everything. But we're quickly drawn to something else that really helps us understand what the good things could be. And that happens when we look at the parallel text in Luke 11, verse 13. I want you to check this out. Note how the language is nearly identical between these two passages, but for a few words. And we see here that the good things that we're studying in Matthew are spelled out specifically in Luke with the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that one of the most beautiful aspects of Scripture? It never contradicts itself. It's truth. And the truth is that we're to ask for kingdom things, the necessities, the good things, the Holy Spirit. We simply can't operate without Him. When we persistently ask, seek, and knock, Jesus promises to answer by giving us what we need to thrive as heirs of His kingdom. So why would we so persistently ask, seek, and knock for all of this? Because it's absolutely everything. It's bigger than the lottery jackpot. This is how we have a relationship with the creator and sustainer of the universe by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The great counselor guides us to be Christ-like. The great comforter brings us into everlasting peace. He gives us gifts 
and fruit and fellowship with other believers. Yes, that's the good stuff that God promises. And isn't it just what we need in the face of judgment to the point of condemnation that we all deal with in our lives? So have you been persistently asking, seeking, and knocking lately for the Holy Spirit and that He might grant you the good things of the kingdom? In that same sister passage in Luke 11, Jesus describes a man who knocks at a friend's house at midnight. He's in search of some bread. He displays real earnestness. He must really need it. He's asking, seeking, and knocking for it. Jesus teaches that you don't get out of bed and give him the loaves because he's your friend. You do it because of his audacity. How audacious is it to wake a friend up at midnight for a loaf? You've got to be kidding me. Nothing compares to how audacious it is for us to ask, seek, and knock so that the God of the universe will forgive us, grant us entrance into his kingdom, and send us his Holy Spirit to indwell us, especially in the depraved, evil state that we find ourselves in. But that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. So let's wrap this up by putting everything together in context with which would should be now a very familiar slide to all of you. There we are. We're on that dark, wide path headed for eternal destruction until we have what we've termed here a red dot transformation. As you look along that white band at the bottom of that graphic, that represents our life. There's a point in time in which we're born, an important time in which we die. And in between those two points is this black dash or this black line that represents our time on earth. And we all spend quite a bit of time on that dark path headed for eternal destruction, enslaved by our sin, at enmity with God, and focused on ourselves. But when Jesus calls us to repentance and we accept his work on the cross, we're justified meaning we're made right before God in a moment by that red dot of Christ's blood. We're born again into a new life in Christ and we receive the Holy Spirit, the good gift Jesus promises in this text, the third person of the Trinity, God himself indwelling us. And the Holy Spirit is always about the business of sanctifying us, making us Christ-like, convicting, counseling, comforting. He walks hand in hand with us down that well-lighted narrow path, always pointing us to Jesus, setting us apart as God's adopted children, preparing us to be heirs of his kingdom. It's no coincidence that this text about asking, seeking, and knocking is here because next week we're going to be studying that narrow path you see up there. And we simply can't walk down it without the Holy Spirit. The more we walk with him, the more we ask, seek, and knock for the kingdom things, the more the Holy Spirit's fruit ripens in our lives. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
the good things. That's we must persistently ask, seek, and knock for. Not worldly prosperity, kingdom prosperity. Almighty Father, today we plead your promise to answer our asking, our seeking, and our knocking, that we might receive your good things, the necessities to operate as heirs of your kingdom, and especially the Holy Spirit, that we might respond to his promptings to make us more Christ-like, that we might bear his fruits in our lives. Yes, that is our prayer, Lord. May none of us leave here this morning without bowing at the foot of your cross and pleading for your presence in our lives. Father, we want to please you more and more, serve you more and more, and know you more and more each day so that our whole outlook on life might be radiant with hope. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So in response to this promise to grant us those kingdom things, let's just all stand. The band's going to lead us in a couple songs of praise. I just ask, even if you're at home, stand, join us. Let's all praise his mighty name and thank him for this wonderful promise, this gift of the Holy Spirit. <laughs>